0: We are in the midst of a series, as many of you no doubt are aware. That is a series on the Ten Commandments. Now, as I was preparing for this message, I ran into a bit of a quandary. On the one hand, I told myself, self, God's law is certainly worthy of a sermon. Maybe I could focus on the whole law in general or on one commandment in particular. But then I said to myself, but self, you are a vocational missionary. By the terminology in this church, I and my wife, we are Great Commission workers. And so maybe it would make more sense to stay in my lane and preach a sermon on the Great Commission. Well, after agonizing over that decision, I have come to the following conclusion. God's law is a most excellent biblical theme. And the Great Commission is a most excellent biblical theme. So, why not take both and put them into one sermon? Let's try it. This is the direction we are going. On your outline, there are three points. The first two points will deal with understanding the Great Commission in its original context. And the third point will deal with present-day application. Matthew, chapter 28, verses 18 to 20. Pastor Ron already read those verses, but we will go back to them now. These are some of Jesus' last recorded words before ascending Into heaven, which means that we cannot overstate the significance of these verses. Matthew 28 18 to 20. Jesus came and he said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son. And of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, what is quite common in discussions about the Great Commission is that the discussion will begin at verse 19, where the imperative is given. However, it is clear from looking at the text, which you all have in front of you, I hope. That Jesus' words do not begin in verse 19. They begin in verse 18. And so it is to verse 18 that we must first direct our attention. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Does anything about that strike you as peculiar? All authority has been given to me has well who had all the authority before jesus Hmm. our first point the authority of jesus in order to answer that question who had all the authority before jesus we must look back way way back to a story which many of you are probably familiar with the peoples of the earth decided that they were going to construct a monument to their greatness. We call this monument the Tower of Babel, from Genesis chapter 11. God is none too pleased with the idea. He disbands the construction project by confusing the languages and scattering the people. And so, hither and thither they go, joining together and forming themselves into separate nations." And then God places each of those nations under the authority of a demon. You never heard that in Sunday school, did you? Go to Deuteronomy chapter 32. Deuteronomy chapter 32. This is a song of Moses that was presented to the whole assembly of Israel very soon before Moses' death. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 8 and 9. I am reading from the ESV. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when He divided mankind, He fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is His people, Jacob, His allotted inheritance." I mentioned I was reading from the ESV because for those of you who do not have the ESV, you might have had a little slightly different rendering at the end of verse 8. Now, this is going to get briefly technical, but this is important if we're going to grapple with Scripture. Some of you have in your versions at the end of verse 8, not sons of God, but sons of Israel. In truth, both readings occur in the Old Testament manuscript tradition. And if you are using one of the church Bibles, there is a footnote that mentions this exact thing. However, because the phrase Sons of God appears in the oldest manuscripts and in more numerous manuscripts, Old Testament scholarship today is generally of the consensus that Sons of God is the original reading. Now, why would a scribe... In copying this hundreds and hundreds of years ago, why would a scribe have written sons of Israel? I think it's actually a very understandable reason. They wanted to take away any confusion that Moses might have been advocating polytheism, multiple gods. But this phrase appears in more than just Deuteronomy 32. In fact, it appears six times in the Old Testament. And when we take all six of those occurrences... The most notable one would be in Job, chapter 1, verse 6, where we are told that the sons of God gathered before Yahweh and Satan was among them. When we take these six occurrences and look at them together, it becomes very clear that the phrase sons of God does not refer to multiple deities. It is not advocating polytheism, nor does it refer to a collection of humans The phrase sons of God in Old Testament theology refers to a coalition of angelic beings. A coalition of angelic beings. So coming back then to Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9, now that we've got that out of the way, what do we understand Moses is saying? Simply this. After the Tower of Babel, God took Israel for himself. They were his chosen people. But all the other rebellious nations, they were given over as punishment to fallen angelic powers. Now hold on to that thought and turn with me to Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2, a psalm of David In Psalm chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, we read, why do the nations rage? If we have the context of Deuteronomy 32 clearly in our minds, we know that these are the other nations. This is not Israel. These are the nations that were given over to fallen angels. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? And then in verse 2, we learn that the rulers of the earth, the rulers of the nations, have joined together in opposition to God and to his anointed at the end of verse 2. Now, the, the, the word anointed refers to a person whom we believe to be Jesus. Uh, in Hebrew, that word is Mashiach. We translate Messiah. So the, the rulers of the earth are banding together against God and against God's Messiah. Again, Deuteronomy 32, we know... That these rulers, though they are very much human, they are undergirded by sinister spiritual powers. In verse 4, God laughs at these rulers. In verse 6, he thwarts them. He thwarts them by establishing his own king on Mount Zion. And then verse 8 notice verse 8 what does God promise to Messiah? the nations he promises messiah the nations now in the days of king david who had the nations who had authority over the nations the kingdom of darkness but this prophecy pointed ahead to a future time when those nations would be given to messiah but that prophecy did not come true for nearly one thousand years And that brings us to Matthew chapter 4. Which was also read for us by Pastor Ron. And a most excellent reading, I may add. The Holy Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Satan's first temptation turns stones into bread. His second temptation, jump off the temple. What is Satan's third temptation? Matthew chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. Was this a legitimate temptation? Did Satan actually possess what he held out to Jesus? Of course he did. And this is made even more clear in Luke's rendition of this same episode. Luke chapter 4, verses 5 to 7. It's going to be on the screen. And I want you all to look at how the devil phrases this according to Luke. The devil took him, that's Jesus, up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Friends, Satan's temptation was thoroughly legitimate because the nations were his domain. But not for long. After returning from the wilderness... To begin his public ministry, Jesus launches an all-out assault on Satan's kingdom. In Mark chapter 3, we are told that by casting out demons, Jesus is plundering from Satan's house, much like Aslan does in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe when he goes into the White Witch's castle, breathes on the statues, and restores them to life, thus depriving her of her captives. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus claims that his power over demons is evidence that the kingdom of God is forcefully arriving, which means that someone else's kingdom is being forcefully subverted. Even at the cross, as Jesus was dying, we are told according to Hebrews chapter two, verse 14, that he was destroying the devil. Not annihilating, not blotting out of existence, but stripping the devil of his authority, rendering him impotent. And then, finally, we come to the penultimate verse, Matthew 28, verse 18. After rising from the dead, Jesus proclaims his victory with the following words, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20, Is the fulfillment of Psalm 2. The Messiah had received his inheritance. The kingdom of Satan was overthrown. Jesus had become the ruler of the kings of the earth. That's chapter 28, verse 18. Let's go to verse 19. And our second point joyful submission. Matthew 28, 19, therefore, go and make disciples. Interestingly, in verse 19, in the Greek, the verb make does not appear. The reason it is in English translations is because it's a more helpful gloss because uh, the Greek verb we don't use commonly in English. The Greek verb, the main verb of verse 19 in the original Greek is disciple. What Jesus actually says to his followers in Matthew twenty-eight nineteen is go, disciple the nations. But go is not the first word of the verse, neither is disciple. What is the first word? Therefore. And that is a monumental conjunction. Therefore, in light of everything that we just discussed in the first point, Jesus proclaims, I am now the king of the world. Therefore, go and disciple the nations. I am Lord of the nations. Go disciple those nations. What did he mean? I'll tell you what he meant. And this is so very important. Don't miss this. The entire sermon hinges on what I am about to say. In Jesus' great commission, he intended nothing less than entire people groups and nations in joyful submission to his lordship, resulting in the spread of his kingdom throughout the earth. Let me say that again because it is so crucial. In Jesus' great commission, he intended nothing less than entire people groups and nations in joyful submission to his lordship so that his kingdom, his authority, his dominion and glory would spread throughout the earth. And in the final two verses, he tells his disciples how they are to do that with three imperatives they are to first go and that presupposes that they are taking the gospel with them gospel proclamation they are to go they are to welcome new believers into the church through baptism in the name of the triune god and they are to teach obedience to all that jesus commanded that my friends is proper understanding of jesus's great commission according to the first century context Now, I know we've already covered a lot of ground, and for many of you, this is new material. So, let's quickly review. In the Old Testament, after the Tower of Babel, God placed the rebellious, evil, wicked nations under the authority, provisional authority, of demons. Israel, he kept for himself. And then, in Psalm chapter 2, God promises that someday in the future, Messiah will receive the nations. A thousand years later, Jesus, who was the Messiah, who still is the Messiah, he was given authority of those nations and he publicly declared that in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, followed by verses 19 and 20, where he dispatches his closest followers to go and disciple the nations, to bring all peoples into joyful submission to his lordship. And as a result, his kingdom would spread throughout the earth. So this brings us to our third point, our final point, the one we'll spend the most time on, practical, present-day application. How do we obey the Great Commission in the 21st century? And, of course, when I say we, when I use that second-person pronoun, No, that's a first-person pronoun. When I use that first-person plural pronoun, I am referring to anyone in this room who is actually born again. And I know in a room this size, as someone else's want of saying, in a room this size, there will be people who are not truly born again. I am speaking to all those who are indwelt by the Spirit of God. For you, for me, for us. How do we 2,000 years removed from Jesus How do we obey the Great Commission? How do we bring the nations into joyful submission to his lordship? In answer to that question, I am going to offer five ideas. But one caveat first. Big caveat. Important caveat. These five ideas, which are meant to be taken together collectively, will not begin to be a sufficient answer to the question. There is so much more that could be said and that has been said. That is why on the back of your notes you have a handy dandy resource list so that if you desire, I highly recommend you do, you can continue your own study in this very area. How do we Obey the Great Commission. How do we disciple the nations? Five contiguous ideas. Each will be phrased as an exhortation. Number one. Cultivate a love for God's law. Cultivate a love for God's law. I told you we would get to both themes. Great Commission, now God's law, seamlessly blended together. But notice what I did not say. I did not say cultivate a knowledge of God's law, though that is important. You cannot love what you do not know. But my exhortation is more specific. We must love God's law if we desire to obey the Great Commission. Pastor Jay has numerous times in this sermon series quoted Psalm 119, verse 97. I will read it again because it is worth repeating here. King David writes in a psalm of praise to God, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Is this how we think about God's law? Do we meditate on his law? Do we cherish His law. Do we love His law? The unfortunate reality is that for many Christians, and I include myself in that, for many Christians we fall far short in this area. We do not, in fact, love God's law as David claimed to do in Psalm 119. We do not uphold God's law as Paul claimed he did in Romans 3.31. Instead, too many of us too often view God's law as archaic, obtuse. Parts of it are embarrassing. Now, I will be the first to concede that a plethora of difficult interpretive issues confront us when we are studying God's law. Can I eat shrimp at red lobster? Do I have to tithe? Why did God command the death of disobedient children? Sounds a bit excessive. And how do we understand the sanctioning of slavery? These are all significant questions. We should have meaningful answers. That's one of the reasons why Pastor Jay is even preaching this series, to assist you in your own education of God's law. And thankfully, there are many others who have done great work in this area. I have included two of them on your sheet, John Calvin and John Frame. They would be well worth your time investing in what they have said on the wider application of God's law. But, for true Christians, we must recognize, understand, and take to heart that God's law is not archaic. It is not obtuse. It is certainly not embarrassing. Despite the aforementioned thorny interpretive issues, plus many more besides, we have no excuse to not love God's law. Now, I know what at least someone out there is thinking right now, so I will put voice to your unuttered frustration. Ben, you're thinking, buddy, Romans 6.14, dude, we're not under the law anymore. We're under grace. Don't you remember that? Well, thank you for the reminder. Yes, I do remember Romans 6.14. I'm very familiar with Romans 6.14. I don't remember, however, anything in Romans 6.14 about God's moral standard changing with the passage of time. In both the Old and the New Testament, God has a standard for people and that standard can be summed up in one terrible, horrible, no good, very bad word. Perfection. Be holy, says the Lord, for I, the Lord, am holy. And here, my friends, is exactly why we, as born-again believers, should love God's law. You ready? This is why we should love God's law. Because when we immerse ourselves into his law, It does two things. The first thing God's law does is it forces us to stare directly into the foul wretchedness of our own sin. The second thing it does is it drives us into the saving arms of Jesus. That is the purpose of God's law for Christians. That is why his law is so important. That is why we must not minimize or ignore God's law. For all those who are in Christ, God's law is no longer our standard that he holds us to. He demands perfection. And in Jesus, we are perfect. Not under law, but under grace. Are we still expected to obey God's law? Of course we are. Just because you are declared perfect does not mean that you are suddenly free from sinful inclination. However, for Christians, obedience should not be viewed as burdensome. Why is that? I'll tell you why. We read in Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26 to 27, God is speaking to Israel about the new covenant, and this is what he says I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. See, friends, unlike Israel in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, we today who are indwelt by the Spirit of God are given not only the ability to obey God's law, we are also given the desire. And that is a tremendous blessing about living under the New Covenant. Returning to our main topic, Great commission obedience. It is impossible for us to properly disciple the nations if we do not love God's law. Why? Because unless we love his law, we will not be able to comprehend the profundity of the gospel, let alone faithfully proclaim it to others. And even more fundamentally, unless we love God's law, we will not be able to live wholeheartedly for Jesus. We won't desire to live wholeheartedly for Jesus, so what right do we have to tell other people to live wholeheartedly for Jesus? In short, what I am saying under this first point is that kingdom advancement cannot be disconnected from kingdom ethics. Kingdom advancement cannot be disconnected from kingdom ethics ethics. Therefore, cultivate a love for God's law. This is the first and the most basic step in Great Commission obedience. Number two. In both theology and practice, prioritize family. In both theology and practice, prioritize family. Throughout Scripture, we learn that God's kingdom is primarily spread through the family unit. And yet, it is becoming more common in our culture today for young Christian singles and couples to purposefully delay marriage and childbearing. I have personally heard many reasons for why they do this. They are waiting to find that right person. They are trying to get through college first. They are seeking financial stability. They are waiting until they are established in their career. Okay, none of those reasons in and of themselves are wrong. However, I suspect that far too often those reasons actually cover up a greater motivation. Selfishness. Are there actually wise, good reasons for delaying marriage and childbearing? Yes, there are. Does God call some to singleness? Yes, he does. Does God give biological children to all married couples? No, he does not. But the point remains. Marriage and procreation are essential for discipling the nations. And this is how God designed it. Why, for those who would wish to delay, why hold back what God is offering out to you as a gift? Let me speak to a moment for two parents who are married or single with children in the home, or maybe you are about to welcome a a new child into the house. Even future parents, I'm talking to you, those who plan or hope or are quite, they don't care about, maybe they'll get married, maybe not, but maybe I'll have kids, maybe not. I'm talking to all of you. But specifically, young families. How can mothers, how can fathers, uniquely participate in Great Commission obedience Every single day. It's very simple. In your home, proactively raise future disciples of Jesus. In your home, proactively raise future disciples of Jesus. From a young age, adore your children, proclaim the gospel to your children and teach your children. Teach them obedience and submission by disciplining them with gentle firmness. Teach them the priority of faith by keeping worship at the center of your home. Demonstrate the excellencies of Christ by inculcating into your children a love for God, for scripture, and for God's law. Not a love for sports. Not a love for movies or video games. Those things can be enjoyed marginally. But how tragic when they come to dominate the affections of a Christian house. Christian parents have the exclusively unique opportunity to daily manifest the all-surpassing worth of following Jesus to their children. Show your children how they can uniquely serve in Jesus' kingdom and then send them out into the world to do it. Grandparents, you have a role in this too. Not only can you join with your adult children in regularly praying for their children, but you can offer your time. You can contribute adventure, wisdom, and fun. When I was a young boy, one set of my grandparents took me and my sisters camping every year. Another set of my grandparents, they would fly every grandchild out to spend a week with them at their home in South Dakota. Now that I am older and I have my own children, I can watch my own father now be a grandpa. He reads books on Christian heroes to my sons. He teaches them how to play games, like right now it's chess. My mother plans special meals for each of my kids and takes them on uh, dates, just one-on-one dates. Grandparents have so much to offer. Discipleship in a family should not conclude once you have reached empty nesting. And a word for those who are struggling with infertility. If you are married but unable to have biological children, or if God has indeed called you to be single and you know you will never have biological children, let me offer this encouragement. You still have a role to play in kingdom advancement through prioritizing the family. Adopted children need to be loved and discipled. So do children in the foster care system. You could volunteer at an after-school program or in the church nursery. You could open a daycare center or teach in youth group. One woman, who I knew as a boy, she is now deceased, She spent 54 years teaching two- and three-year-old Sunday school. There are many options and opportunities for those without biological children. You are not excluded from the pleasure of participating in Great Commission obedience. And that takes us back again to our larger theme. Discipleship of the nations. Here's the connection. When Christians, the world over, prioritize family. Generation after generation, what is going to be the result? Nations will joyfully submit to the Lordship of Christ. Maybe not in my lifetime. Maybe not in your great-grandchildren's lifetime, but it will happen. It is going to happen for certain because we have God's promise. More on that in a moment. We are answering the question, how do we in the 21st century... Disciple the nations. How do we obey the Great Commission? We've already looked at two answers. We now move on to our third. Testify to the gospel. Our third answer, testify to the gospel. Or to say it another way, demonstrate to others the unparalleled beauty of a transformed life. Moses says to Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 5 to 6, after he gives them the law, see, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them, do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who, notice now Moses is referring to the other nations, When they hear all these statutes, they will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. Israel was meant to be a salvific light to the nations through their obedience of God's law. So now we take Moses' words in Deuteronomy 4 and we apply them in our context. Every day we mingle in our various social circles. We go to clubs and board meetings. We go to work and school. Serve in local ministries or on town councils. Whether you are shopping for groceries at Walmart, whether you are washing dishes in the kitchen, or whether you are introducing bills in the legislature, Christians can demonstrate to others that something is very different. When you look nothing like the world, the world will notice. Imagine that friend, that coworker, that family member. You know who popped into your head. That person who's been watching you. They will continue to watch you. They will ponder. They will puzzle. They will be terribly vexed. Finally, perhaps, their curiosity will get the better of them. They will say, hey, psst, over here. Come here. I have a question for you. Why are you so happy? Why don't you lose your temper? Why are you so thankful and Why don't you uh, ever lie? I've noticed you're unfailingly honest. What's your secret to all this? What a golden opportunity. Take the focus off of yourself. Put the focus on Christ. Declare the hope that you have and tell them how they too can be reconciled to God and have the same hope. Now, even after watching you for years, some people will still appear apathetical. They will never approach you. They will never ask. Does that mean that you have failed to live out your faith publicly? No. It simply means that salvation is ultimately in God's hands and he saves whomever he will. But don't forget this. External ambivalence does not equal spiritual deadness. External ambivalence does not equal spiritual deadness. You will never know this side of heaven, the true depth of impact that God will allow you to have on others. Friends, by the world's standard, according to the world's evaluation, most of us will live thoroughly unremarkable lives and we will rest in unvisited tombs. But the world does not account for the impact of God and his gospel through his children. And so in all that we do, by word and by deed, day in and day out, let us testify to the gospel. Let us spread the sweet fragrance of Christ and thereby demonstrate the unparalleled beauty of a transformed life. When we make Jesus irresistible to others, we are obeying the Great Commission. Number four, keep looking back. How do we obey the Great Commission? We keep looking back. Here's here's the deal, friends. You can all relate to this. We turn on the news, we watch the news, we turn off the news, and inexplicably, we feel worse than we did before we turned on the news. The temptation every time I turn on the news or every time I go to a website, CNN, Fox News, BBC, I am tempted to feel despondent and anxious. Now, thankfully, we're not the first to feel this way. When Jesus was hanging on the cross and his disciples were standing there looking up at him, they were not feeling overly optimistic. And they had no idea that they were witnessing one of God's greatest achievements. He is ever-present. God is ever-active behind the scenes. He is working all things according to the counsel of His will. And to flip on the news and after 10 minutes conclude that the world is just getting worse, friends, that is appallingly short-sighted. And I would add with just a touch of irony, it's humorous that we sit in our big overstuffed easy chairs, watching the news on our flat screen high def TVs in our climate controlled houses, drinking out of a tap where purified water flows daily, and we complain about the state of the world. One very helpful way of maintaining biblically grounded hope and optimism for the future is to look back at the past. Find examples in history of nations who did, for a time, turn to God. Let me give you two examples. First example, Hawaii. Are you aware that in 1840, Hawaii became a Christian monarchy? That very year, a constitution was drafted. And this is the first line The opening words of the Hawaiian Constitution, circa 1840. It is our fixed decree that no law shall be enacted which is at variance with the word of the Lord Jehovah. All laws of the island shall be consistent with the general spirit of God's law. One other example from Great Britain. We now go back to the year 1643. The Parliament of England in conjunction with the Parliament of Scotland, made a pact with God. It is called the Solemn League and Covenant. You can go online and you can find the entirety of the text printed. Let me read you just a part of the Solemn League and Covenant, 1643, Great Britain. Because these kingdoms are guilty of many sins and provocations against God and his son, Jesus Christ, We profess and declare before God and the world our desire to be humbled for our sins. We have not valued the benefit of the gospel as we ought. We have not endeavored to receive Christ in our hearts and to walk worthy of him in our lives. And our true and unfeigned purpose, desire, and endeavor is that we would amend our lives, that each of us would go before another in the example of a real reformation that the Lord may turn away his wrath and establish these churches and kingdoms in truth and peace. This covenant we make in the presence of almighty God, the searcher of all hearts, most humbly beseeching the Lord to strengthen us by his Holy Spirit for this end. Wow. Friends, history testifies to the fact that for a time, Some nations have pursued righteousness. What derailed that pursuit? Many things. Complacency, laziness, forgetting God's law. But the point remains, it has been done before. And by God's grace, it can be done again. And done with even more effectiveness than our spiritual predecessors. Don't be short-sighted. Don't become despondent. Learn from history. Keep looking back. In the latter half of this sermon, we have been answering the question, how can we in the 21st century obey the Great Commission? How can we disciple the nations? So far, we have considered four answers. Cultivate a love for God's law, prioritize family, testify to the gospel, and keep looking back. Our fifth and our final point, keep looking ahead. As we strain forward, as we keep our gaze fixed on Christ, what enables us to keep looking ahead with hope is that we have God's promises reverberating in our ears. And let me close this sermon with two of God's promises that I want you to take hold of and plant deeply down into your heart. Two promises of God from Scripture that should keep us looking ahead. First promise, the devil cannot stop us. Matthew 16, verse 18. Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. Yes, the devil and the demons are still around. They are still active. They are still powerful. But they cannot oppose or thwart the spread of Jesus' kingdom. Our present work and the resultant momentum Will continue into the future because we have the power of Almighty God supporting our efforts. Satan cannot stop us. And the second promise of God Jesus will have the final victory. Matthew chapter 13, verses 31 to 32. Jesus tells a parable, it's one of his shortest parables. He said, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air may come and nest in its branches. What are the real world reference in this parable? There are two. The garden is our planet. The garden is earth. The mustard seed is Jesus' kingdom. Jesus' kingdom, according to his own words, is planted into the earth. That occurred in the first century. And then after that, it grows and becomes massive. What this parable teaches us, what this parable reminds us, is that kingdom expansion is slow, it is gradual, and kingdom advancement is inevitable. Friends, we are not polishing brass on a sinking ship. When Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go and disciple the nations, he did not dispatch his followers on a failed mission. And he does not send us on a failed mission. We toil, we labor, we faithfully and joyfully obey the Great Commission, and in God's perfect timing, Jesus will have the final victory. But that time is not now. Therefore, go. Disciple the nations. Let's pray. Father, may we go. May we go boldly. May we go courageously. May we go with joy, undergirded, lifted up by your strength and your delight and your power for the sake of your name and not ours. I pray that as we each go from here today into our next week, week after week, as we interact with coworkers and neighbors, with friends, with families, as we interact with our enemies, I pray that we would emanate the aroma of Christ. May his love be evident in us. And may that aroma be the sweet smell of life for those who are perishing. Use us, Father, I pray. Use us as you deem best for the spread of Jesus' kingdom and to the praise of his glory. It is in his matchless name. I pray and ask all these things.